coming soon, Exo Ordinary, Mind Facts. Greetings. My name is Exo. You may know me from Vix, Weekly Veritas Comic Strip. Quite frequently, many of you write to Mel, with great information or he finds interesting articles he deems very important, but we haven't been able to find a way to disseminate it all. Some background. You may remember, or have heard of the golden era of classic radio, and Paul Harvey's, the rest of the story. The latter consisted of stories presented as little known or forgotten facts on a variety of subjects. Our goal is to emulate the same feel, and introduce important information, sometimes controversial, to elicit listeners to think for themselves, and be equipped with new information. Don't we do that at Veritas, already? Stay with me. Topics will vary, and the audio clips should last between 1 to 3 minutes. Why, exo-ordinary? Because it sounds better than extraordinary, and because, yours truly, will be the one narrating. I am almost certain you may have deduced why, mind facts. Facts, is the closest word we could come up without sounding offensive. Get it? This will be another way in which you can participate. We will open this to all of you, so you can send your own material. I may read your submissions in future installments. It is work in progress, and we are open to suggestions. Contact Mel, if you want to participate, or have any ideas. And for some current mind facts, you may have noticed how yesterday, there was a media outage with Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and even Twitter. Did you find it somewhat strange that your images, videos and audio, were not available after a certain point, but all prior material was? A media storage outage would have prevented you from seeing all media, which had nothing to do with your computer or device cache. Some reported to us, that after uploading photographs, the images would not appear, but some strange text did, which described the photographs. Text the users did not write. The two examples we received showed, image may contain smiling people, standing in front of the ocean. The other one, image may contain people dancing and laughing. Which made sense, after another person reported the outage was related to the deployment of object recognition AI on images across the different social media platforms. What if they're testing the switch that turns off your ability to share material they don't want the world to see, during and after a future event? Research China's Sesame Social Score, for what may be in store for us in the future. The best course of action, in order to restore our privacy, is to take it back. More on this, in a future installment. Veritas, is, our platform, and we are all in this, together. Subscribe at VeritasRadio.com, and keep supporting, the uncensored truth. Thank you. I'm Exo. And now, on to this week's Veritas interview. This, is an encore presentation from the Veritas Vault to celebrate the life and legacy of the father of modern-day ufology. Stanton Terry Friedman, took his last breaths in this world in a place where he spent so much time over the past five decades. An airport. He died in Toronto on May 13, 2019, on the way home to Fredericton from a speaking engagement in Ohio. He officially retired in 2018, but his passion for speaking about UFOs kept him accumulating air miles, even at the age of 84. Over the years, 
He lectured in 10 provinces, 50 states, and 19 countries. In addition to presenting the facts on UFOs, his lectures usually spoke about humanity's need to get its act together and move beyond tribal warfare. He was so right. His books and articles were models of clean writing and argumentation. It's hard to imagine ufology without him. Visit the In Memoriam page of our website to revisit the life and legacy of many others. We hope you enjoy this Veritas classic, with our friend, Stanton Friedman. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and as usual, I sincerely thank you for tuning in. Tonight's special guest is the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. We'll be going to the interview rather quickly since we have received so many of your questions and we don't want to leave any stone unturned. Stanton T. Friedman received bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956, where Carl Sagan was a classmate. He worked for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for General Electric, General Motors, Westinghouse, TRW, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas, on such advanced, highly classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. Since 1967, he has lectured on the topic of UFOs at more than 600 colleges and over 100 professional groups in North America, including the United States, Canada and Mexico, Europe, South America, the Middle East, Asia and Australia. Often referred to as the father of Roswell, he was the first to investigate the incident beginning in 1978. He has been investigating UFO incidents since the mid-1950s. With us tonight, known to many these days as the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton <laughs> Friedman. Hello, Stan, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Oh, I'm good. In beautiful downtown Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, where it's cold and there's a lot of snow on the ground. <laughs> I bet it's cold there. Stan, in all the years I have listened to you, I did not know Carl Sagan, rest in peace, was your classmate. One of my favorite quotes is displayed on our website. I don't want to believe, I want to know. You've been doing this for a very long time. We have a different platform on this show, and having such a high-profile guest, it's sometimes difficult to formulate questions that haven't been asked before. My pledge to the audience is that this show is about questions the audience wants to ask but was never able to. Okay. That said, a large portion of the questions we'll have for you tonight come directly from our listeners around the world. And I must say, they are very good questions. Naturally, let's start with the case that started it all in the public's mind. July 1947, Roswell, which you thoroughly describe in your book, Crash at Corona. Fast forward from 1947 to 1978. Is this how it all started for you? And how did you get involved as the first civilian investigating this case? Well, it certainly isn't how my interest in UFOs got started. I uh, I read the first book, uh, Edward Ruppelt's book, uh, uh, about the report on unidentified flying objects uh, way back in 1958 as a young nuclear physicist working for General Electric in Cincinnati, ordering completely by accident almost. Uh, I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping on a bunch of books I was ordering from a discount place in New York. I was working in Cincinnati. 
And uh, there was the report on UFOs by Ruppelt, and it was marked down from a hardcover book, mind you, from two ninety-five to a dollar. <laughs> and uh, that's what shipping would have been if I hadn't bought the book. So what the heck? It wasn't going to cost me anything. Now, I had some other thoughts at the time. I, I had read a lot of science fiction when I was, oh, 10 or 12 years old. I had a friend who had a basement full of the old pulp magazines. And uh, I read them for a couple of years, so to speak, and then I got into the real world more. But uh, I figured that the Air Force was co-sponsor on the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Program. It was a big program. We spent $100 million that year, GE did, which was a lot of money in 1958. Sure. might imagine. I, to some people, I guess it's a lot of money now. <laughs> but, of course. Uh, uh, we employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of them engineers and scientists like myself. Uh, anyway, and I thought, okay, the Air Force are good guys. Uh, the... Uh, I, I didn't have any opinions about UFOs, but I thought if these things were real and they used nuclear power, hey, that would help the program. And finally, uh, what the heck, if worse comes to worse, it'd be worth a laugh, you know. I read all kinds of stuff. I read the book. It didn't convince me, but it intrigued the heck out of me. And I shared it with the neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I was. And he was more impressed than I was, which impressed me. I moved off to California. One of my many programs that eventually got canceled was the ANP program. I, I specialized in canceled government-sponsored research and development programs. Not intentionally, you understand. But uh, And I read 15 more books in California, some of which were junk. And if I'd read them first, I probably would never have read another. And then I made a, I had my epiphany, so to speak. I discovered... At the University of California Berkeley Library, the report on unidentified—well, it wasn't—that was Ruppelt earlier, but the re Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14, the biggest study ever done for the United States government—and it hadn't been mentioned in any of these 15 books that I had read. And it was chock full of data, and I'm a data hound. 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. What was most shocking, however. And this really kind of set me on my ear a little bit, was to find that the guy had put out this privately published version, Dr. Leon Davidson, who used to work at uh, Los Alamos, had included the press release that the Air Force issued. They didn't distribute the report, but they issued the press release in October 1955. And they said, quote, because this set the whole tone of Air Force coverage for the next umpteen years, they said, on the basis of this report, now this is the Secretary of the Air Force talking, my name Donald Quarles. On the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Unquote. That sounds pretty straightforward. There's nothing to this. I mean, the only trouble is when you look at the data, which I did, uh, it turns out the unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. And it turns out they weren't the cases for which there wasn't enough information because there was a whole separate category. 9.3% were insufficient information. And in addition, as if that wasn't enough, they did a quality evaluation of all the sightings, 3,201 cases they looked at. So this wasn't, you know, just a couple of guys spending a few weeks. And uh, 
they found that the better the quality of the sighting, the more likely to be unexplainable. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and they furthermore, they asked the obvious question, well, okay, is there really any difference between the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in really, and the knowns? And so they did what is called a chi-square statistical analysis. Basically, they looked at six different characteristics, apparent size, color, shape, speed, that sort of thing. And they compared the unknowns with the knowns. And amazing, they found that the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. Does that prove they're really in spacecraft? No, of course not. But it sure says they aren't just cases for which there wasn't enough data. So that report shook me up. Look, I was working under security. I'm accustomed to, well, sort of sometimes you had to sort of tap dance around the truth, if you will. You don't want to lie to people, but sometimes you have to uh, avoid telling the whole truth or something. But sure. here we have a blatant lie by the Secretary of the Air Force. And the lie has been repeated many, many times, uh, not only by Air Force people, but by, well, Carsey and... Uh, Carl said twice, once in print and once uh, to a reporter, well, that wound up in print too, for in Toronto, that there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable, which is true. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, which is also true. But there are no interesting and reliable sightings, which is totally false. Of course, he didn't give any basis for it, for that statement. The data's there in Blue Book Special Report 14. And it's one of five large-scale scientific studies that I normally discuss at the beginning of my lecture, Flying Saucers Are Real. And I talk about them in depth in the first chapter of my new book, Flying Saucers and Science. Uh, the point is you better look at the data first before reaching a conclusion. And the myth, and I heard it on television programs uh, and radio programs that I've been on, the myth is that, oh, well, there's a residue. You always get a residue when you look at the unknown, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and that's malarkey. 21.5% is not a residue. Uh, fewer than 1% of the naturally occurring isotopes are fissionable. Does that mean none are? Of course it doesn't. Fewer than 1% of the people are 7 feet tall. The basketball coach says, hey, uh, give me one. I don't care about the bulk or the majority or whatever. One good guy is enough. So the mythology has gone on forever, if you will. Anyway, that was about 1960-61. I gave my first lecture in 1967. Uh, that's 11 years before Roswell, before I heard about Roswell. Actually, I'd heard about it in the early 70s. A woman told me that she worked at a radio station in uh, Albuquerque and that their Roswell affiliate had called saying that uh, a crash saucer had been recovered. It was being shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And then there was a bell ringing on the line. She was putting it out on a wire and it said, do not continue this transmission, FBI. Hmm. Well, I I talked to her. I'd gotten to her because her son had had a sighting, and uh, two of us, uh, Bobby and Slate Geronda and I, were talking to the son, and he said, you really ought to talk to Mom. She had a great sighting back in Albuquerque. So we talked to Mom and uh, Lydia, and uh, she told us about her sighting and then got on to this case, uh, Roswell. 
Well, I followed up on it as far as I could go and ran out of steam. There just didn't people didn't remember or had died or whatever. But it was in 1978. Now remember, I'd already been lecturing for 11 years to all kinds of places. There's more than 700 now. But uh, and I was at uh, a television station in Baton Rouge, Louisiana to promote my lecture that night at Louisiana State University. I was supposed to do three interviews. And I did, the uh, station manager knew the person from LSU who brought me to the station, so he was being accommodating and stuff. I did the first two, and then the third reporter was nowhere to be found and didn't have cell phones back then. So, you know, he's apologizing. He's looking at his watch. He knows I have other places to go and things to do. And uh, he's embarrassed. Finally, he says, uh, out of the blue, I mean, it had nothing to do with anything we were talking about. It was just him and me. And he says, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. Mm-hmm. Now, brilliant investigator that I am, I said, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, well, he handled wreckage from one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. Well, and I picked up my teeth from the floor. Tell me more. Well, he lives over in Houma, Louisiana. I didn't know where that was. I've been there since <laughs> to interview Jesse, as a matter of fact who's dead now, of course, but still. Right. Uh, and uh, he said, you really ought to talk to him. He's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. That's how they knew each other. And it turns out the, the station manager, Johnny Allen, had read about Jesse in the uh, oh, New Orleans, the, the fancy-named newspaper they have. Um, and later, when they were ham radio buddies, uh, he asked him about it, and Jesse said, I can't tell you anything. But... I called, I had a great response that night, and so I was figuring, oh, what the heck, people are really good here. Uh, the next morning from the airport, mind you, just out of curiosity, I called information, got a number for Jesse, called him, yeah, and I used the name of the uh, station manager, so, you know, I wasn't coming at him cold. Now, he could not deny that he'd been involved in this, because his picture was in newspapers all over the place. His from Page. Was... What? From Page. Well, yeah, I mean, so he's not one of people say, why do these people talk to you? I said, well, most of the people I talked to first time around, I mean, like Colonel, uh, retired general, when I talked to him, uh, DuBose, his picture was all over the place. These people couldn't say they didn't have anything to do with that. But Jesse told me a story. He didn't have a precise date. And I knew that uh, 47 was a big day, you know, big month, year, uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting in June and so forth. So you sort of filed it, and I, uh, a few months later, was in Bemidji, Minnesota, Bemidji State College, and uh, somebody there, after my lecture, asked me if I had ever heard about a crash saucer in New Mexico, and I said, well, yes, and uh, tell me more, and I got their name and address. This is really the Barney Barnett story over in the Plains of San Augustine. But I shared that with Bill Moore as I had the Jesse Marcel story, and he had a third story, and that was really the impetus that gave us something to work with. Uh, we heard this story that was in Flying Saucer Review, an English publication, about an English actor, Huey Green, who, this was in a 1950-something article, driving across New Mexico, had heard on the radio about a crash saucer. He was heading toward Philadelphia from L.A., and thought for sure there'd be a big fuss when he got to Philadelphia. No fuss. 
But he could remember the date, early July 1947, because it wasn't a trip you made very often back then. You can imagine what the <laughs> roads were like. Sure. And, uh... Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section, or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.